0: Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Greg. I serve here as one of the pastors at Midtown Community Church. Uh, This morning, we're going to be continuing our series that we're going through the book of Titus. And today, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. Um, If you want to open your Bibles there, if you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles in the pew, it's going to be on page 1058. So when I was in college... I majored in biblical studies. I had just kind of recently become a Christian. I chose biblical studies as my major, not because I felt this like deep, profound calling to pastoral ministry or to study the Bible, but honestly, because I looked at like engineering and uh, physics and computer science and literally everything else and thought to myself, reading the Bible sounds easier than that. I was also a very immature Christian, which uh, the story that I'm about to tell you will demonstrate quite well. So one day, I was heading out the door to go to class when my roommate looked at me, kind of a devious grin across his face. He extended his hand to me and said something like, take these and you'll have the best class of your life. In his hand were two little green mystery pills, and I like the meticulous, cautious, prudent person that I was, downed them without asking any questions, and off to study church history, I went. Uh, Mom, I'm sorry if this is the first time you're hearing this story, but... 30 minutes later, I'm sitting in class, and it turned out my roommate was right. This was the best class I had ever taken. He had given me about 120 milligrams of Vivance, which is an amphetamine similar to uh, Adderall, a very high dosage for anybody, uh, let alone a first-time user. We were just kind of making responsible decisions all around. It felt, though, like I had taken the limitless pill, like I was locked in, social, energetic, productive. I got back from class and like cleaned every surface in my dorm room. Spotless. And this experience led me to buying the rest of my roommate's prescription off of him. Because like, you know, what are a few heart palpitations when you can be efficiency personified? (laughs) After a few weeks, that bottle was up. I found another friend who was selling Adderall. And then another and another and this all turned into what i can see now in hindsight as what used to be an addiction i don't have adhd but was doing everything i could to get my hands or nose on vivance adderall concerta ritalin just to be able to like take my exams and function during the day it got so bad i remember taking people's bible exams and quizzes for them online in exchange for their prescription We would make a little bit of a deal where it's like if I got an A, I got two pills. A B, I'd get one. A C, I wouldn't get anything, which wasn't a problem because I didn't get Cs, right? But here I was studying the Bible full time and using my knowledge of Scripture to fuel my prescription drug abuse. And I was a Christian at this point in time. Not only a Christian, but a pretty theologically informed one. I could read the Bible in Greek, but needed a line of Ritalin to wake up in the morning and an Ambien to sleep at night. There was this chasm between what my head knew or thought I knew and between my conduct, like how I actually lived. Today, I'm over a decade on the other side of that addiction and and genuinely living my life for Jesus in a way and with a passion that I never have had before, but I would be lying to you and fooling myself if I said that that chasm between my head and my heart didn't still exist. It definitely does. My library is maturity-wise light years ahead of my life, and I know this because two days ago I got frustrated with my toddler for being a toddler when I just came home from work just stressed out about writing this sermon. Like, the irony of writing a sermon about Jesus and then handling the stress of that so poorly that I lash out at my toddler and acting in a way that Jesus never would. The chasm still exists. And I think it does for all of us. Like in every one of our lives, to some extent, there is a disconnect between what we do and what we believe, or at least what we think we believe. And So the question is, like, how do we change where do we go when we want to bring our lives more in tune with our beliefs? Or when you are sitting there feeling like a deep longing for spiritual growth, maybe guilty because like, you feel like you've plateaued spiritually, and when you, you want to grow again, like, what's the first step? What's the strategy? Or when I'm filled with shame because I can't seem to beat that particular behavior pattern. What's the first step? In our text today, Paul is going to make this claim that the answer to all of those questions is grace. He's going to say that grace is not only the way people get saved, but also the way people change. And that the way to find genuine, lasting, serious change is not to like move on from grace to another behavior modification technique, but actually to dive deeper into grace and learn from it. And so I invite you to listen with open ears as I read again from this book that we love. This is God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a way sensible, righteous, and a godly way in the present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession, eager to do good works. Proclaim these things. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning my prayer is that we would encounter the grace of Jesus show us what it means to have a Savior who gave himself for us, to have a Savior who now counts us as his prized possession, and show us how that affects every facet of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning, we're going to talk about grace in two different sections. We're going to first talk about the definition of grace— And second, the classroom of grace. The definition and the classroom. First, let's talk about the definition. So the focus of our text is all about the grace of God. An interesting thing that's happening here is that, and it's not immediately obvious in the English translation, but but look at verses 11 to 14 with me. They're all one massive, long, run-on sentence in Greek this is one large tangled thought that Paul is having. Right? If Paul had submitted this letter to like my 5th grade English teacher, he would have gotten this back with red ink all over it and like maybe written in the upper right hand corner like use punctuation with like two lines underneath it. But Paul didn't have the pleasure of being taught by Mrs. Buck, and so he strings together this line of thoughts that make up one large, complex, run-on sentence. And the subject of the sentence is grace. Our text this morning is one big thought, and it's all about grace. But what exactly is grace? Like, what is it? If you've grown up in church, you've probably heard Christians lob about this phrase endlessly. Right? We, it's a Christianese cliché. It's deep in our vocabulary. We talk about walking in grace, saved by grace, endless grace, all-sufficient grace, amazing grace, and so on, so much that these phrases kind of seem to lose their meaning if they had any all to begin with. Grace is in the name of hymns, it's the name of churches, it's the middle name of every other white woman I know, including my daughter. And so, (laughs) for a moment, let's just revisit the basic But crucial question of what is grace? The popular definition for grace that you've likely heard before goes something like, grace is unmerited favor. It's unmerited favor. And that's true as far as it goes. But in terms of our text this morning, I think it's too unspecific. Paul is not satisfied here to leave grace be defined as like a vague blob of undeserved kindness, generally speaking. No, Paul wants to give grace a very particular shape by identifying it with a very particular person and particular set of events. In other words, he wants to put a face to grace. And he defines it quite clearly. Look Look at verse 14 with me when he says, he, that is Jesus, Gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people for his own possession. Right, what is grace? Paul says that grace is Jesus giving himself for us. Right, look at verse 14 again. Look what's implicit. The assumption that Paul makes here is that we were both lawless and unclean, right? We were lawless. Every single one of us in the sense that we all wanted to be like the captain of our fate, the master of our souls. We we want to have nobody else tell us what to do. We want to live according to our rules. And we were unclean. That is, and we know this and feel this, I think, on an intuitive level that the things that we do, the evil that we do, the sins that we commit, not only hurt those around us, but stain our souls and have us feeling dirty inside. The grace of God is that Jesus sees all of those things and still decides to give his life for us, to bring us back under his liberating law, and to clean us up. Paul says that we've become a special people for his own possession, The word for possession here doesn't mean property, right? Like I own this water bottle or I own my shoes that I got for a killer deal at Marshall's the other week. But, But it's like a prized possession. His chief, his crown jewel, the best thing he owns. That's grace. That the grace of Jesus takes dirty, lawless people like you and me, cleans us up, brings us under his liberating law, and counts us at his prized possession. Now it's interesting here, right? Paul talks about God's grace from two different angles, or two appearings. right? Notice how the word appearing appears twice in our text. one with reference to the past and one with reference to the future. So he says in verse 12 that the grace of God has appeared past tense, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 13 that the hope of God will appear, future tense, when Jesus returns again. And here we are kind of in the middle, like sandwiched between these two appearances of grace. The theologian Canon Hay Atkin talks about the two appearances of Christ. And he says that the the two appearances of Christ are like two windows in the school of grace, through the western window, a solemn light streams in from Mount Calvary. Through the eastern window shines the light of sunrising, the herald of a brighter day. Thus, the school of grace is well lighted, but we cannot afford to do without the light from either the east or the west. This is a grace that is both past and future. It surrounds us, it's for all time. And as verse eleven says, it's for all people, right? It's not a grace reserved for those intelligent enough to like solve the spiritual Rubik's cube, because this kind of grace isn't discovered, sought out, or dug up. Notice how it says it appears, it comes to us. It's not a grace reserved for the economically elite. Because as we saw last week, it applies as much to the wealthy as it does the slaves. This is a grace that billionaires are in need of if as much, if not more than the beggars of this world. It's not a grace that's reserved for the morally upright and those who have their lives together. Because as verse 14 makes clear, nobody does. Not one of us. And it's not a grace that's hindered by our sin. As if it were like possible to be too far gone for grace or have messed your life up too badly. There's no one beyond the need of this grace and no one beyond the reach of it either. This is the grace of God in Jesus Christ, one that brings salvation and redemption to undeserving sinners. That's the definition of grace. Next, the classroom. Now, in the Greek culture of Paul's day, there were these popular phrases that were used in their cultural literature that described like an upright, civil, uh, civic life. So in the Hellenistic ethical system, uh, and Hellenism refers to like the, uh, the culture and the philosophy of ancient Greece. If something is Hellenistic, we're just saying it's ancient Greek. Um, in the Hellenistic ethical system, the respectable life, the upright life, is brought about by the Greek educational system, right? The way to get citizens who are honorable, respectable, noble, was to have them educated at like a top-of-the-line Greek university. And Paul knows that and is doing something brilliant here in our text with that cultural idea. Namely, Paul is taking these popular Hellenistic virtues that they boasted about and they taught their children about these virtues, and he's using them in our passage. So just look at verse 12. The words sensible, righteous, and godly are three of the four cardinal virtues in the Hellenistic ethical system. They often occur in Greek in stoic discussions about what respectable living looks like. And Paul does something fascinating here with them. He uses these terms, but says that the thing that is going to teach them how to live life respectably like that is not the Greek classroom. Notice, what is it? It's grace. In the beginning of verse 12, Paul says that grace does what? It instructs us. It teaches us, trains us, disciplines us. The picture that Paul is painting in this text is like one of all of us sitting in a classroom, ready to learn about how to live an upright moral life. And the professor at the front of the room is the grace of God. One scholar puts it like this. The language is decidedly Hellenistic, Because Paul is contrasting the appearance of the true Savior with Hellenistic ideas. And in firm contrast to the Hellenistic ideal of education resulting in virtue, the virtuous Christian life is firmly grounded in the redemptive work of Christ. Now, I think this is different than how most of us conceptualize like the relationship between grace and our lives. When we think about God's grace, often we think about it as like centered on forgiveness, but not ethical instruction. As if we need it to like get into the Christian community, we need it to like get saved, and then like when we sin, we need it because we make mistakes. But other than that, it's like up to us to run our lives. We can move on from grace. Grace is the baby talk of Christianity, it's the preschool classroom. And it's good for people who have just become Christians or are thinking about becoming Christians, but for like, for the mature ones among us, we need something more profound, theologically rigorous and sophisticated to think and talk about. We often talk about grace as if it's like a pair of jumper cables to get our car going and then like maybe help it out when it breaks down. But then other than that, we're left to drive it on our own. But Paul is saying here that the relationship between grace and our lives is a lot less like jumper cables for a car and more like gasoline. Like, not only is it necessary to get our spiritual cars started, it's necessary to go anywhere or do anything at all. The grace of God in Jesus Christ is not only how we get saved and become Christians, it's also a great professor who teaches us and trains us to do good works. Like, how does Paul say that we learn to deny godlessness and worldly lusts? Primarily, is it by our accountability partners and Bible reading plans? No, it's by being taught and instructed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. How do we start living a sensible, righteous, and godly life? By being taught and instructed by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. This means, right, that I think the grace of God in Jesus is actually far deeper and far more, like more far reaching than we usually assume. It's far deeper in the sense that you could take one particular angle of the grace of God and think about it for years and you would keep on discovering both new ways that speaks to you and new ways that you are in need of it. Again and again and again, there's layers to the grace of God. And it's more far-reaching. It's broader because the grace of God has incredibly far-reaching implications for everything that we do. It's fascinating like in... Uh, Galatians 2, Paul is recounting how he corrected Cephas, Peter, and he says that Peter was walking out of line with the gospel. Right? The idea was like that there was the gospel and then you could like draw lines from it. And he's saying the, the, Peter was out of step with the gospel. He was living in a way that was inconsistent with the gospel. The gospel has lines that can be drawn to every area of our life. It is deeper and more far-reaching than we usually assume. And the unfortunate tendency that I think many of us have is that functionally, maybe we don't articulate it this way, but functionally, we try to graduate from the grace of God and move on to something else that we think will really get us to change when really the problem is we never went deep enough into the classroom of grace to begin with. So let's just say it like this, right? Moral principles will not change your life in the way that you're looking for change. Dare I say, biblical principles will not change your life in the way that you are looking for it to change. The thing that can actually bring about change is an encounter, like, with the real grace of God in Jesus Christ. It's an event that saves But it's also an event that educates, which is why, just like logistically, here at Midtown Community Church, we center everything we do on the grace of God, on the gospel of Jesus Christ, because there's nothing that we can do to like move on from it, because we can never plumb the depths or discover the implications of it. So if you've been coming here for some time, you've probably had a thought at some point in time that goes something like, man they're not very creative. Like every week is like pretty much the same thing. Every sermon is just like a different, every sermon is just like, here's what Jesus did, here's what he will do, here's what it means for your life. Again and again and again in a slightly different way every week. Our worship service, our liturgy is designed the same way every single week again and again and again to remind us of this truth to focus our hearts and our minds on the gospel because the gospel is not only an event that saves but is the classroom that we learn to live our lives in. And when we recognize that there is a disconnect between how we live and what we believe the solution is that Not that we need a new behavior modification technique. The solution is to bring our lives into an encounter with the grace of the living Jesus again and again and again. So the answer is like, why could I be an intellectually and theologically astute college student and be addicted to amphetamines at the same time? The answer is because I understood grace at an intellectual head level and it never stepped down into my heart. And I was swimming at like, in like the shallow end of the grace pool, thinking that's all there was. Why do I lose my temper at my children? when I know that's not how God wants me to parent. Because there are still areas of my life where I don't fully believe the gospel and need to encounter the grace of God again and again and again and again. See, the goal of the Christian life is to allow the gospel to bear out its implications, to draw a line from the gospel to every area of our lives. And therefore, you could state like the big problem of the morning like this. None of us believe the gospel. Not perfectly or fully. Every one of us in this room is, to some extent, an unbeliever. We might assent to the intellectual truths, but at a deep, heartfelt level, we're not really buying it because if we did, we wouldn't act the way we do. So ask yourself this. What would it look like if you really believed these two appearances of grace? What would it look like for us as a community if we really began believing that Jesus appeared and gave himself for us? Like, how would our view of social justice change if we truly came to believe that first, God appeared on this earth as a homeless man, and second, that God is the God of ultimate justice as is displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ? What would my battle with like insecurities look like if I truly began to believe that I was God's prized possession and that I didn't really need validation or approval from like, all of you because I have it in God already? What would my relationship look like with that like, hard-to-forgive person and like our relationship's been a little awkward ever since they said that one thing to me? What would my relationship look like with that person if I really came to believe that in Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven for far worse sins than I've ever had done to me? What would it look like if we really began believing that Jesus will someday appear again and make everything right, that blessed hope that Paul talks about? What would my my anxiety look like if I really believed deep down, like when it's all said and done, everything's going to be okay? What would my vocational life look like if I really believed that someday I was going to inherit the universe and reign it with Jesus? What would my grief look like if I really believed that someday Jesus is going to come back, wipe away every tear from my eye and make everything new? So, the grace of God, both past and future, changes everything if we truly believe it. Now, the question I'm sure many of you are thinking is like, all right, fine, even if I grant you that, then what do I do when I want to believe it, but I don't know how? Like, if there were like a switch on my arm that I could just flip and be like, okay, now I believe, I would flip the switch. But how do I do it? How do I bring my life? How do I change my heart? How do I believe what I want to believe, but can't figure out how? And that's a question for another day. The answer to that question, in short, is what we call, at at Midtown Community Church, we call Rhythms of Grace. And we're gonna do an entire sermon series on that question sometime in the future. For now, just hear this. The grace of God in Jesus Christ for you is not only your salvation, it's also your instruction. It's your education. And so the offer before you this morning is not to walk out of this building or even sit in your seats right now like just resolving to try harder, fix it up this time, do better this week, resolve better, but to look once again at the grace of Jesus Christ and encounter him there because that is what will truly change us. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that we at Midtown Community Church would be a people that not only know about you, but would be a people that know you on a deep, intimate level. That even now, this morning, you would allow us by your spirit to encounter your son, the living Jesus. Show us his grace for us. Show us that it is a well that will never run dry or that we can ever plumb the depths of. That it extends and applies to everything in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake.